so um, uh, I was looking in um, my uh, my uh, concordance this morning and, and over the last couple of days and listening to some really good teachings on worship. Um, I was listening to Jack Hayford, who's written over 100 worship songs. I mean, this guy's got a handle on worship. And uh, some of his teachings, and, and I was just so touched by it, I just felt like, a, you know, we're at that time of year. You know, this is a, you know, whether you know it or not, you know, Christmas time, the Christmas time of year is about worship. It's about, you know, us worshiping a Savior. And we'll read a scripture in a, in a moment that talks about how these three kings, these three magi came from the east. They may have traveled a thousand miles. And the first thing that they say when they go to King Herod is they, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Because we have come to worship him. And so when we think about that, remember when the devil asked Jesus to bow down and worship him, and he says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll just bow down and worship me. And so in the Living Bible, in the Living Translations, there's 332, listen to this, out of 66 books in the Bible, there are 332 references to worship, to just that word alone. And so I just want to just kind of pick up in Genesis and kind of, first of all, just what does it mean? What does that look like? What does worship really look like? I know that when we talk about worship here on Sunday morning, this is what we expect. We expect a worship team to be here, and, you know, we, uh, we've got all kind of these thoughts and ideas, you know. Some of these people are goofy, and they raise their hands, and others are just like sitting there, but are they really worshiping? What's going on in their hearts? And... Uh, but I want to just kind of walk us through what worship looks like from Genesis to Revelation, and then we're going to break it down, okay? Uh, I couldn't get all of this on your outline, and I know that some of you thought, oh my gosh, the outline is short this morning, so we're going to get out of here in a hurry, and uh, that's not the case. Uh, half of the stuff I just couldn't get on. But I do have it on the overhead, and I think we're down to one screen this morning for some reason. But let's just begin in Genesis chapter 4. The first time that, that we see this word mentioned is uh, in Genesis 4.26. It says, and when Seth grew up, he had a son named Enosh, not Enoch, but Enosh. At, the time, at that time, uh, people first began to worship the Lord by name. And then we see um, in Genesis 22, Abraham going up to uh, offer his son Isaac uh, in sacrifice, and Abraham says, stay here with the donkeys, Abraham told his servants, the boy and I will travel a little farther, and we will worship there, it's the second time it's mentioned, and then we will come right back. And then we see in Exodus chapter 4, uh, 4 uh, verse 23, says, um, I command you, this is what Moses is saying, uh, or God is saying to Moses, he says, I command you, let my son go so that he can worship me. But since you have refused, I will now kill your firstborn son. And so we see that this whole concept of worship that, that really, you know, um, Pharaoh was, uh, he, he didn't realize what he was doing, but he was really hindering God's people from going forth and worshiping God. And then we see in 1 Samuel chapter 12, another reference to worship. This is when the children of Israel had asked for a king and God said that he had thought that he was going to be their king, but they wanted to be like the nations of the world. And so 1 Samuel chapter 12, um, Samuel says to them, Don't be afraid. You have certainly done wrong by asking for a king. But make sure now that you worship the Lord 
with all your heart and don't turn your back on him. Then in Job chapter 1, you'll remember all of the tragedy that had come into Job's life. I mean, he lost all of his flocks, all of his sheep, all of his camel, all of his crops were destroyed. Then finally his children, he lost his children. And it says that Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped the Lord. See, it's not like when we feel like worshipping. God deserves our worship no matter what's going on in our life, when and where, God deserves our worship. Not based on our circumstances, not if I I just feel like I'm I'm happy this Sunday morning, I'm going to come and worship. Job goes on to say, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then we see David, a man that we know he knows how to worship. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, this is after David's affair with Bathsheba. Uh, She becomes pregnant, has a son, and uh, the son is sick. And uh, David is fasting and praying for his son. And David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves and realized that the child was dead. And he asked, is the child dead? Yes, they replied, he is dead. And David got up from the ground after he had washed and put on lotion and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. And then Nebuchadnezzar, this is in the book of Daniel, said, praise be, this is after the three Hebrew children refused to bow down to the the God that... uh, Nebuchadnezzar had made this golden image, and uh, he says, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him, the one true living God, and defied the king's commands and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. And then we see, this is scripture I mentioned earlier, Matthew chapter 2, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, it says, during that time, King Herod, uh, the, during the time of King Herod, Magi, or the wise men from the east, uh, came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one that is born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And then we read in Revelation, just kind of fast forwarding here, the third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury, which it will be poured out in full strength in the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And then finally, we see over and over in the book of Revelation that John, this John the Beloved, this is uh, not John the Baptist, but this is John the disciple, the apostle, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Uh, James died in the book of Acts, killed by the hand of Herod, and and John chooses, uh, remember uh, when Jesus uh, spoke to Peter, and, uh, you know, he's telling Peter, you know, when you were young, you did what you wanted to do, went where you wanted to go, but when you grow old, uh, you're going to be led by by someone uh, to places that you don't want to go, and... uh, It says that Peter recognized that Jesus was talking about his death, and then it says that he looked at John and said, well, what about this man? And uh, Jesus said to Peter, if I would that he tarries till I come, what is that to you? You do what I'm telling you to do. And so uh, John, the book of John, the gospel of John goes on to say that many understood that uh, to be a statement that John would not die until Jesus returned. And it goes on and explains that Jesus didn't say that. He says, if I would 
if I would. And so we read in Revelation that this one that knew Jesus, that walked with Jesus, that uh, leaned up against his breast and leaned against him during that last supper and in the first chapter of uh, Revelation falls, sees Jesus in, in his glory, this, uh, in this, the, just the glorious resurrected Christ and falls down as a dead man. And, uh, and he knows all of this and yet several times in the book of Revelation we see this same thing repeated. I, John, am one of the ones who heard and saw these things and when I heard and seen them I fell down at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me, but he said to me, do not do it. Don't fall down at the feet of an angel. And the angel goes on to say, after he says, do not do it, I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. The angel is proclaiming to John, the beloved, just simply worship God. Um, you know, uh, just north of us in Colorado Springs, uh, in uh, some of you probably know the history of this, but in 1893, uh, Catherine Lee Bates was a professor from uh, a Midwest College and had gone out, uh, come out to uh, Colorado to Pikes Peak and uh, was staying uh, there for the summer, staying in a hotel in Colorado Springs, and by day would go up to Pikes Peak, and it was while she was up at Pikes Peak that she was able to look um, at the, uh, you know, from that, that incredible mountain range, you know, uh, if you've ever been up there, it's just stunning. But it was there she was inspired to write the song, America the Beautiful, and, um, you, know, it, you know the song, Oh Beautiful for Spacious Skies, for Amber Ways of Grain for purple mountains majesty above the fruited plain. America, America, God shed his grace on thee and crown thy good with brotherhood from sea to shining sea. And I, I don't know if you know it or not, but uh, that is the, the continental divide. And it's the watershed from uh, everything that kind of comes off the east side of that flows over to the Atlantic um, and everything from the west side of that flows into the Pacific. Now, I mean, in your mind, I want you to just kind of think about that and what she was thinking as she wrote that. From that place, you see all of this incredible watershed that's flowing from the mountains to the east and waters those great grasslands and what we know is the breadbasket of America, you know, Kansas and Nebraska and all of those, uh, those great uh, states that produce all of our abundance of crops. And then from the east side, the watershed is a little bit less. And so we have this incredible, we have a lot of wasteland, desert land, uh, Arizona, Nevada, you know, until we get to parts of uh, California. And when, when, I, when I think about that, when I think about what she saw about this incredible watershed flowing that way, that's really the way that worship is in our life. You know, that God, you know, Jesus said that out of your bellies will flow these rivers of living water. And I believe that he was talking about, I believe that he was speaking about worship, that, uh, you know, we can't really do this on our own, but when the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon us, then it enables us to just worship God in ways that we've not been able to in the past. And so worship is so important, and I want to just kind of pick up with, uh, 
this whole story with Jesus and the woman at the well, and I'm just going to kind of just jump into it because really what he's talking about in the story, while there's a lot of good things in this story, the crux of the story, the, the hinge of the story is really about worship. And Jesus answered, everyone that drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whosoever drinks the water that I will give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw the well, or draw water from the well. Now, she's talking about the physical water, and he's talking about this spiritual water. And so, you know, he gets right into it. Um, someone said that the greatest way to the heart is through the wound, and, or through the wound, wound of an individual. And it says that he says to her, go call your husband, and this is the deep wound in her life, and she says, I have no husband. And he replied, yes, you're right when you say that you have no husband. In fact, you've had five husbands, okay? And the man that you have now is not your husband. And so that was like a piercing, cutting moment in the ministry of Jesus to this woman but he doesn't beat around the bush. I mean, he just cuts right to the chase, gets to the heart of the matter. Sir, the woman says, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers, here, here we go in this worship thing. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And what Jesus is really saying, it's not the place. It's not the place. It's about the heart, not the place. It's not about the location. It's about what's going on in the heart. Uh, he says, Then a time is coming and now has come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worship that, worshipers that the Father seeks. God is a spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. So I want to break this down for us a little bit this morning. I know it's a story that's just really familiar. We all know the story. If you've had a, you know, just a, a breath of church at any point in your life, you probably have heard this story. But I want us to see in here that Jesus is saying in this story that there is acceptable worship to God and there is unacceptable worship to God. And so I just want to make sure that we're on the same page here this morning, that we're bringing acceptable, we're coming into God, we're coming into a place uh, with acceptable worship. Let me first of all cover what unacceptable worship is. He says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. They, they were worshiping, they were true, they were really worshiping, but they didn't know what they were worshiping. They're like Paul, remember when Paul is, I believe, at, at Athens, and uh, he goes in and he walks through, and he says he walks through and he sees all these idols and all these statues there. And he even finds one, an idol statue, to the, and it was marked to the unknown God. And Paul says that what you ignorantly worship, I'm going to tell you about him. The God that created the, the heavens and the earth, the one true God, I want to explain him to you. And really that's what Jesus was saying to this woman. He says, you don't even know what you're worshiping. Now notice what he says here in Matthew chapter 15. It says, these people, he's talking about these religious people, honor me with their lips. Okay, you see how we can do this. That's what religion is. 
You're just going through the motions. And I don't care if you're raising your hands or if you're sitting there, if you're just singing songs. You can go through the motions, and it may look like worship. It may sound like worship, but God is not looking. Remember what God says, that God doesn't look at the outward appearance. He's looking at the heart. And, and it's like the parable that Jesus told about the wheat and the tares. I mean, you know, they were both growing together. The wheat was growing together. The tares were growing together. They both looked exactly like wheat for a period of time, but they got to the place where they weren't bearing any fruit. And the, uh, the uh, servant of the master of the field says, should we pull them up? And he says, no, let them both grow together. He says, we'll deal with that at the end. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. This is unacceptable worship. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. And then we read in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 12, it says, You have planted them, and they have taken root, and they grow, and they bear fruit. You were always on their lips, but far from their hearts. And so this is just going through the religious motions or the motions of religion. So that's what unacceptable um, worship is. I, can, I mean, I can take you to Isaiah chapter 1 where he says, enough, I've had enough of your feast days and your new moons and your Sabbath keeping. He said, I've had enough of all of these things. You know, he says, you know, what I really want is your heart. And then he gets down to verse 18 in Isaiah chapter 1, and, and he's just like, you can hear the heart of God. Please stop doing this. Please stop going through the routine of religion. He says, you know, he says that you were, are filled with sin, and then he says, come, that famous scripture that most of you know, all of you probably know, come let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will shall be white as wool or white as snow. And so the, the heart of God is uh, for you and I, you know, to uh, not put on our, our Sunday smile and our Sunday face and our Sunday dress, but the heart of God is that I want you to worship me because of who I am. Now, I want to show you uh, what real, true worship is, the kind that he talks about here in verse 23 and 24. He says, the time is coming and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seek. God is the Spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. So what's that mean? All right, I want to break that down for us. I want us to look at it. I want us to take a good look at it because probably one of the best examples of what this looks like is uh, found in Second uh, uh, Samuel chapter 6. And we pick up here. This is in chapter 5. Uh, David has already become king. He's the king of, uh, remember for a while there was kind of the divided kingdom. You had Saul that, and, and his followers were not accepting David. But in chapter 5, it all kind of comes together. Uh, the, the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes, they've all come together and accepted David as king. And for the first time, for the first time in the history of Israel, uh, Jerusalem is taken. Uh, it had been under siege by a, uh, a group of people, I think they were called the Jebusites, and uh, David goes up and they shout down from the walls. I mean, Jerusalem was a fortified city at that time. They shout down from the walls that, you know, there is no way that you're going to be able to take this city. And uh, David and his men uh, went through the water course. It was a water course that went through the city, and they went into, uh, through the water course and overtook the city. And it was the city of God. 
It was the city of God. And there's this, this incredible unity now in uh, Jerusalem and uh, throughout all of Israel. And David wants to bring the ark to the center place, to the center of Israel. Uh, and so we pick up in uh, chapter 6, uh, verse 1. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all of his men set out from Bala of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. And they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it, and David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, and with songs and with the harps and lyres and tambourines and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the ox stumbled. You get the picture here. They got the ark on the, on the cart. The ox stumbles. The uh, ark starts to slide. Uzzah reaches in to kind of steady that. And it says that the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. And therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark. Then David was angry because of the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, the place is called Perez Uzzah. And then David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? Notice he goes from being angry with God. I know that some of you have been there. You've been angry with God. And then he goes from being angry with God to being afraid of God. You're like, what's God going to do? Uh, and then he says, How can the ark ever come to me? Now, there's a, a lot of this story that is left out in this particular um, uh, statement of the story. It's found again in 1 Chronicles chapter 15. And there's a little more breakdown on what that looks like, on uh, how the ark was supposed to be trans uh, or, or supposed to be moved. There were rings in the side of the ark, and poles were supposed to put, be placed in those rings, and it was supposed to be. Uh, born upon the shoulders of the priest, uh, not to be placed on an ark. And so the, the, someone said that this is like a religious, what they were doing is like a religious system. And um, I like the statement where someone said that, you know what an, a cart is made out of? It's made out of big boards and big wheels. And uh, uh, kind of like a lot of our church committees nowadays, boards and big wheels. And uh, so, but that's not the way that God had prescribed that the ark was supposed to be moved. The ark was supposed to be carried by the priest, and so all of this was kind of unpleasing or displeasing to God. And we continue on. It says, um, David asked that question, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the, Lord, the ark of the Lord um, uh, he was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Now, I don't know how, if you guys know the story, if you start in 1 Samuel and you start reading about when the Philistines captured the ark, I'm sure that all of this is history. 
And uh, so when the ark was taken captive by the Philistines, all this, I mean, these disastrous things, they take, they take the ark and put it in the temple of their god, Dagon. Well, the next morning, Dagon is flat on his face. And so the Philistines upright Dagon, and while the ark is right there next to him, and then the next day, they go in, and Dagon, this is a huge, you know, probably multi-thousand-pound statue that's flat on his face again with his head broken off and his hands broken off. And then all of a sudden, all of these judgments and plagues become to, you know, come to the Philistines. And then uh, they decide they, want, they don't want any part of the, of the ark, and so they put it on a cart and they get rid of it and uh, send it down into Jerusalem. And then some men from, uh, or from, some men from Israel go look inside, and uh, there were, I think, 70 or so of them that died just because they look into the ark. And uh, so there's, David decides he wants to send the, the ark to the house of Obed-Edom. Now, if you are Obed-Edom and know that history, what are you thinking? I think, David, what have I done to you to make you not like me? <laughs> you know, why do you want to do this to me? I know what the history of the ark has been. But it wasn't that way. It says that he took the, the ark there to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, and the ark of the Lord... And this is where this story gets beautiful. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now I want you to know that the ark represents the presence of God. And so when we continue to read this story, I want you to just see these words that just kind of like jump out. They pop out. You know, all of these... Uh, expressions of worship, you know, just like what people do in the presence of God. Uh, and so uh, Obed-Edom is being blessed. His household is being blessed. And it says that, uh, it says that now King David was told that the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything that he has because of the ark of God. And so David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who were carrying the ark, notice that it's not on a cart now, it's being carried uh, with the staves and by the priest. Uh, those that were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps. He sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Now think about that, guys. One, two, three, four, five, six. We stop. We sacrifice a bull and a fattened calf. It was six miles from Obed-Edom's house back to Jerusalem where David wanted to take the ark. I mean, can you imagine that? Every six steps sacrificing uh, an ox uh, and a bull. Every six steps. And David was wearing a linen ephod. Um, that is just kind of like a loincloth. And, and, and let me tell you what that means, okay? David had taken off his priestly clothes. He'd taken off his crown. He'd taken off his king, king's clothes. Um, he'd taken off everything that was royalty. And he is like everybody else. I mean, he's there just kind of a... He's not there as a king. He's there as a worshiper. And you can see in David's heart and David's mind how precious this was, how important this was, how worshiping, being in the very presence of God, what a change it had made to him. 
And it says, David, wearing the, the linen ephod, danced before. Notice his expression, sacrificing. He danced before the Lord with all of his might. And while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of God with shouts and with the sound of trumpet. Notice all of these expressions of worship, sacrificing, dancing, shouts, and sounds of trumpets. And as the, Lord of the, uh, as the ark of the Lord was entering into the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Have you ever done that? Have you ever looked at someone and thought, yeah, they're not just really, they're not worshiping God. This is all pretense, you know, and maybe kind of despise someone because they were a little more exuberant in worship than you were. Have you ever done that? You know what? We probably have all been guilty of doing that. You know, you see someone dancing, you know, up here, and you're thinking, dude, tone it down a little bit. Tone it down, you know. Uh, you know, or you see, uh, you know, our youth, uh, I, you know, some of the, uh, you know, youth, uh, worship their amped uh, youth night you know the youth are kind of like bouncing off the floors and off the walls and off the ceilings and you guys should come watch it sometime okay quite an experience um but so we keep on dancing before the lord she despised him in her heart and they brought the ark of the lord and set it in its place inside the tent that david had pitched for it and david sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the lord and after he finished sacrificing the burnt offering and the fellowship offering, he blessed the people. Now, now watch this. Watch this. We've got the blessing in the presence of God. We're just talking about the very presence of God. That's what the ark represents. And in the presence of God, you've got blessing. You've got those that are rejoicing. You've got those that just their whole desire is to sacrifice and to dance and to shout and the trumpet sounding and leaping with joy and burnt offerings and fellowship offerings and the blessing of the people. There's a, there's a sense of real blessing that comes in the presence of God. And it says that David gave a loaf of bread and a cake of dates and a cake of raisins to each person uh, in the whole crowd of the Israelites, both men and women. And all, that went, all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, he's coming back. He's been in the presence of God. Now he's coming back to bless his household. And Michal, uh, daughter of Saul, came to meet him and said, well, notice this, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. And David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his household when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. I will be humiliated in my own eyes, but by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Now, she had spoke in this despising of other people worshiping. She had spoke a curse in her life. Uh, she had brought this upon herself. But David is saying, you know what? I'm not ashamed. Remember what the Jesus said? If you're ashamed of me, you know, before mankind, I'll be ashamed of you before the angels and my Father in heaven. Well, I, you know, I've always taken that to mean that, that 
you know, when I'm out witnessing or I want to talk to somebody about the Lord, you know, not to be ashamed. But in a sense, guys, I want to tell you, we can have that right here in church sometimes because I, I think that if we are not doing something outwardly that our heart is telling us to do, it's almost like, well, what are people going to think of me? What are, what are people going to think if I, if I raise my hands or if I dance a little bit? What are they going to think? You know, what, what would they think? But David didn't seem to care. I mean, he just said that, you know, I'm, I'm not ashamed. And I mean, I'm just, you know, uninhibited and unashamed. I'm just going to worship God. I don't care what you think. I am worshiping God. Amen? Are you guys with me this morning? Anybody there? All right. All right. So look, the ark represents the presence of God. Now, I know that, you know, the Bible talks about three kinds of presence of God. And um, one of them is, you know, well, people say, well, well God is everywhere. It's true. That's called the, the omnipresence of God. That's what David talked about in Psalm 139. He says, if I go up to heaven, God, you're there. If I go to the far side of the sea, God, you're there. If I go into the depths of the earth, you're there. He said, darkness doesn't hide you from me or me from you. Even in darkness, you're there. In light, you're there. There's no place that I can go that I can escape your presence, is what he's saying. That's the omnipresence of God. And then there is the covenant presence of God, where Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, he says, Lo, I will be with you to the ends of the earth. You know, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to walk with you. But then there's that manifested presence of God. And that is, that manifested presence of God is that just when God shows up and he speaks to you and that sweetness of his voice is there, that he comforts you, he guides you, he gives you direction in his life or in your life. And I believe that that's what David was experiencing while this ark is moving along. I believe that he's experiencing the manifested presence of God. It's just like, man, it's just causing me to rejoice. It's causing great joy to come into my life. I mean, I just want to just stop everything and magnify the Lord. I mean, I'm betting they couldn't go six steps without stopping to praise God in their life. You know, guys, I want to just tell you that, you know, some of you know my history about being in real estate and real estate broker, real estate developer. And I, I just remember this one of those transition periods in my life where I was, uh, you know, I, I, I was troubled. I, there was a change that was coming in my life, and I didn't know what it looked like, and I wasn't sure that I was comfortable with it. My business had succeeded, and I was doing really well, and uh, I felt like God was telling me to close my office and, and just start going into a different direction. And I'd bought this piece of property, and I'm, you know, I can, I'm, I'm closing the office at the same time. I'm starting to develop this other piece of property. And it was on a Saturday. I remember it just like it was yesterday. And uh, uh, where we lived before the house we're in right now, kind of on the east side of 285, uh, there was a mountain. That was, uh, we were surrounded by the El Dorado Wilderness area there, and there was kind of a, a, a nice little hill behind our house that went up several hundred feet. And a lot of times I just, you know, go up there and just kind of be alone and just kind of seek the Lord. But I was deeply, genuinely troubled about this transition that was happening in my life. And I was sitting there, I, I was up above where several, maybe a couple of hundred feet above our house. And from there, I could see this property that I was going to develop and um, where some of you live today, um, a place called The Ridges. 
And I'm sitting there looking and I'm thinking, God, is this, is this what I'm supposed to do? Is this going to work? Is this going to work? It's just kind of like a, you know, uh, I was talking some months ago to a banker and talking about developing. And he said, don't even think about it. He said, the, the economy's so bad. The market is so bad. Don't even go there. And so I'm thinking, you know, in my mind, Lord, is this really going to work? Is this going to be successful? And as I'm having those thoughts and I'm looking, and, and this is just really kind of interesting for me as I was thinking about this this morning, I'm looking just straight ahead at this property that I'm going to develop, and right next to it is Highway 285, and it is the road that I came in on in 1970 uh, when I was coming to Santa Fe to visit my girlfriend. And, uh, and I'm looking at this road, and I came down that road with $7 in my pocket. I hitched a ride from Houston, and um, I, had, I had $7. I had a $5 bill and two $1 bills. And I'm 1,000 miles from home. And, um, and I'm looking at this road and looking at this property. And I'm just, you know, I'm thinking, you know, God, is this going to work? And um, all of a sudden, I see this. Uh, we had started the infrastructure for this property we had to put in several miles of road, and the first thing you do is what they call just kind of grub or blade the road or where the road's going to be. And so when you initially you cut all the grass off, all you have is just dirt. And I could see this cloud of dirt, you know, this uh, cloud of dust just kind of going down the road. And I saw another one going down the road and uh, another one going down the road. And I thought... Uh, Dang, you know, what's going on? You know, I'm like, uh, did it, you know, a couple of weeks earlier, we had a lady that was kind of out by our house that had been riding a horse, her horse threw her, had called an ambulance, and there was so much traffic going down the road, I'm thinking, thinking the negative, maybe something is going wrong. At the same, same time, I'm thinking, is this going to work? This is a transition period for me. God, is it going to work? I need to hear your voice. Is what I was saying is, God, I, I'm in a place right now that I need to hear your voice. I need to know if this is the right direction for my life. And so I got in my car, my truck, and I drove down. And, uh, man, here comes a car just driving pretty fast. And I see this hand sticking out, and they're flagging me down. And uh, this lady says, are you Mr. Sebastian? I said, yes. And she said, uh, uh, I've been out here looking at some of your lots. Uh, I'm going to have my attorney drop the papers. We're going to send you a contract on one of the lots. I thought, I mean, I'm not, I haven't even advertised. Nobody knows that I've got lots for sale. And so um, I thought, okay, cool. And so I drove down a little bit further, and almost the same thing happened. This uh, guy flags me down. He says, I found a lot here that I want to buy, and we're going to send you a contract. And it was just like God's confirmation before I was able to run one ad uh, or start any advertising or even get the word out that I had lots for sale. Uh, God's saying, this is the way that I want you to go. This is the new direction that I want you to go in your life. Some of you are at that place this morning. Now, I want to tell you that when that happened to me, you know what? I, 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 you know, just right there, 
right there. Just the, the very presence of God. I mean, this joy just kind of came up in my life or in my heart. It just overwhelmed. And I'm just, I'm just saying, God, I am so grateful. Thank you so much, God, for caring for me, for leading me and guiding me and giving me direction in my life. You know, I just want to worship you. I'm just praising God. I am just thanking God. All right. So let me just wrap this up. Um, so I believe that David, that story that we, rep- or that we read right there just represents worshiping God in spirit. This is what happens when the spirit of God comes upon us and we just want to worship God. And then he says, in truth. Um, and I, I began to think about that. What's that mean? Well, I went back to some of the scriptures where Jesus was telling us, you know, he says, look at these guys and don't be like them. He says in Matthew chapter 6, he said, be careful uh, that you do not do your acts of worship before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do. And so he's talking about in truth. Now, that was the key word for our worship team to come back up, in truth. <laughs> um, and so then he says again, he's talking about, you know, when you do your, you know, do your acts of righteousness, you know, when you're doing this, when you're, when you're, uh, when you're giving, um, in truth would be just, I just quietly want to give. I'm just, I'm just, you know, quietly want to give to somebody because God has prompted me to do that. And then he says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They stand on the street corner. And uh, they pray so they could be seen by men. But he says that, you know, in truth, when you're, when you're really doing this in truth, you're, um, you're not doing it to be seen. And he says that when you fast, don't do it like the, uh, don't look uh, somber like the hypocrites do because they're just doing it to be seen. Now, that's what truth is. When we, when we, just, when we give because, our, you know, God has put it in our heart to give. And by the way, you know, I, I Nina mentioned this last week. We've had a number of opportunities, and it just seems like this time of year, there is so many, so many you know, needs. But I want to just say this to you. I just really want to put your mind at ease. You know, I read this book the other day. It was 101 uh, things to do to keep people from coming to your church. And one of them was to take up two offerings in one service. I hate that. I hate it that we have to do it. You know, sometimes we have people that come, and they just come on a love offering. Well, we've taken up our morning offering, and then we have to take up another offering. And I, I just don't like doing that. But never, ever, ever feel, you know, like you have to give. You know, if you're not giving out of a, a cheerful heart or a grateful heart, just you know, if you don't feel, you know, led to give, please don't give. And so, um, you know, he's just saying that in spirit and in truth. Now, I want us to just look at Psalm 100, and I want, to, I want us to just think about this for a second. Uh, I want you to just think about where you've come from. Just, you know, just, if you would, just close your eyes this morning, and, and I want you to just think about where you come from and where you are. And think about what God's done in your life. From the very beginning, from the cross. Let's just start at the cross, where we got saved. We think about... God's great love for us, but we came to the cross and we knelt at the cross and said, Father, we want to receive your son Jesus as our, our Savior, that we want his blood to be the cleansing agent for our sins. We want forgiveness of sins. Let's just start right there. But then we think about daily his love and his grace and his mercy to each of us. 
And then we think about our families, our wives and our children, our parents. We think about our health and jobs that we have and finances that we have and houses that we have and clothes that we're able to wear, the country that we live in. And we have so much to be grateful for, so much to be thankful for. And it should cause our hearts to just want to just worship him, to magnify him. Would you just stand with me for just a second? I want to, I want to just read Psalm 100, and I'm going to ask us to respond. Now listen to this. He says, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness and come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. He is, it is he who has made us and we are his. We are the people, the sheep of his pasture. Shout to the Lord. Could we just for a second just offer the Lord a shout and a praise this morning and a clap offering? I mean, we're grateful. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Blessed be your name, Lord God. Hallelujah. We love you. All right. So... Let's worship God. Let's worship God.